0: Support for HPR comes from Haleakalā Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalāRanch.com. Ranch.com.
1: Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, host of The Body Show. Each week, we do our best to provide you with up-to-date
2: medical information from our local experts that might help you or someone you love
3: know more about the world of medicine. Join us next time for our latest episode, Monday at 6.30 on The Body Show.
0: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next virtual info session for the 2023 Executive MBA is March 21st. Scheidler.hawaii.edu/events.
3: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been almost four months since we learned of a spill of firefighting foam concentrate at Red Hill. It's unclear why it's taken so long to release the report about what led to the discharge of the toxic chemicals and the video of the spill. The concentrate contains what's called forever chemicals because they don't break down easily. PFAS is short for per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. The dangers of the chemical getting to an aquifer is something that residents of Okinawa are living with. It was the subject of a documentary screened in Honolulu last month. Marty Townsend was in the audience. She served as head of the Sierra Club of Hawaii for six years. She said back then critics called her an alarmist uh, about the risk to our drinking water. Townsend is now with Earth Justice, still keeping a watchful eye on Red Hill. She says there are parallels between Okinawa and our situation in Hawaii today. Townsend recalled a sinking feeling when she first heard news of the fuel contamination in our drinking water. She was traveling at the time and was in a hotel room in Iceland
4: and was in isolation because she had come down with COVID. The similarities between Okinawa and Oahu are, it just kind of turn my stomach. You know, Okinawa is where Oahu is going to be in a few years, right? For however long it takes, the, the PFAS contamination that was not removed um, to percolate down into the water we will be in in their situation right their situation is the water is contaminated everyone is drinking contaminated PFAS water they did blood tests and the contamination is pretty extensive and so now they're in the process of assessing the health impacts you know Okinawans are often um, touted as you know having long lives but actually there's been a downward trend and they have a lot of illnesses that they didn't used to have and so they were attributed to other things but now the scientists are assessing whether maybe PFAS is the connection there. For example, they had often thought that the trend towards low birth weights in Okinawa was due to noise and the noise pollution, but they were able to do some extensive studies that showed that actually the low birth weights were due to the PFAS contamination in in the mother's blood. And so I think there's going to be a lot more revelations coming out about the PFAS and medical conditions that people have. In terms of the similarities here, so many years of engaging with the military and trying to hold them accountable and seeing the exact same language used with Okinawans to just divert attention, distract, to downplay, to just do whatever they could to minimize their accountability, do whatever they could to, you know, not be transparent and not be helpful. And Okinawans have it a little worse because they have to interface with the Japanese government as opposed to, you know, we at least get to engage directly with the military. But, you know, we saw for a long time that the Hawaii Health Department ran interference for the military, right, telling us, you know, that everything was fine, that they had it under control, right? And it took, you know, several lawsuits and a lot of advocacy to turn the Department of Health around to actually become an advocate for the public's best interest. And Okinawa is dealing with the same thing with Japan. So I think the lack of accountability was really like the thing that really kind of like was a, a stone in my stomach.
3: We're talking about PFAS, and and like I said, we're still waiting on the release Mm -hmm. of that report. But I know you were really frustrated when it it came to spills uh, at Red Hill with fuel. Yeah. And, you know, now the the military has pledged to be more transparent. We're pressing the EPA and the Department of Health to get the military to produce uh, documents about
4: previous spills, you know, whether it's Uh fuel, you know, diesel or PFAS. We shouldn't give up, but we also should manage our expectation. The military is not going to give us what we ask for. The military is going to give us what they are willing to share, and that's it. We are dealing with the most powerful military on the planet, and they are accountable to no one, and they are contaminating the water supply around the world. And it's going to take a huge collective effort, an international global effort to get them to stop. They are the world's bully at this point. One of the similarities that also really like gave me chicken skin was the way in which the Japanese government tried to explain to Okinawans that the U.S. military was defending them and protecting them as if to justify the contamination that they were exposed to. And they did the same thing here where they are trying to tell us well you know think of all the jobs that the military bases give us and think about all of the protection you know if it weren't for the U.S. military who would be occupying us kind of a thing and I mean that is just perverse logic you know they are killing us to protect us, really? I just We shouldn't accept that kind of logic anymore. We really need to hold the military accountable by whatever means. And if, you know, our local governments are unwilling to do it, if our federal government is unwilling to do it, then the public needs to do it.
3: Well, we heard national security many times, you know, as a, an excuse and a reason why they couldn't release information about Red Hill. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, we're going to shut it down. And I don't know what kind of success uh, the health department and the EPA has had with more detail on previous bills, you know, and the cleanup effort. I don't know. Is, does that make you nervous? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
4: You know, everybody celebrated that announcement in March last year when the Secretary of Defense announced that we're going to. I mean, Turns out, Red Hill's not really strategic. We don't actually need it, so we're going to shut it down. And I mean, I, it's great that they are committing to shutting it down, but it just it really boiled my blood because that means that those people were harmed for no reason. There was zero justification for Red Hill to be maintained for this long, except for the Navy's convenient access to gas. Right? Like that is just outrageous and, and so infuriating. I hope that the lesson that people take away from that is that they don't accept any of the excuses or explanations or justifications that the military gives us. There is no justification for contaminating our water, our water, the Okinawan's water, anyone's water. And the fact that it's like all throughout the continental U.S. as well, these people, this institution of the U.S. military is out of control and we need to rein them in. There is no excuse or justification for for harming our public health in this way, for undermining the health of our environment in this way. Like, we are just at the beginning of it. You know, we are living through the worst-case scenario, but this is just the, you know, opening monologue, basically. It's going to get much worse. We don't know where the fuel is going that's been released that is, you know, in the groundwater supply. It may start to percolate up into our near-shore waters, right, because there's a direct connection between our aquifers and our our coral reefs and our fisheries right near the shoreline. If they're going to start coming out in the streams, you know, people are not going to be able to use stream water the same way in Okinawa where they're having to fill in wells that are, you know, hundreds of years old because PFAS is found there. This is going to have significant, long lasting impacts into our quality of life. The
3: military is talking about reuse of those tanks and I don't know if you have any personal druthers about what they do take it down i mean they want to they want to keep it in place there have been ideas you know from storing water to dry storage but any thoughts about that
4: so i don't think that they can just leave the tanks empty i think that there's probably some like physics involved there that will mean that the tanks will collapse from the weight but it's going to continue to degrade right so they probably have to put something in there You know, it would be great if we could figure out a way to—I don't know—we could capture carbon and put it into the tanks. You know, and have it become stone. You know, we're going to have to have a desal plant. As much as I don't like that idea, we're going to need a place to put the brine. Maybe put the brine in there. I do think we need to make them inoperable, though, because Mm -hmm. I do not trust the military one iota. And if these tanks remain at all functional, the next—you know—major national security, whatever, whatever. They're going to want to clean out the tanks and use them again for fuel. And we can't let that happen. You know, sure, we can figure out ways to fill the tanks, you know, both for public safety and, you know, for our own, you know, efficiencies. But we shouldn't allow them to be at all used for fuel ever again. Do you think the EPA is doing enough? Honestly, I don't think that the EPA is in a position to, I mean, on paper, legally they are in Mm -hmm. a position to regulate the u.s military in practice in actuality Mm -hmm. they can't and they Mm -hmm. won't the epa should do what it can but we should all recognize that it's never going to be enough
3: anything else that has just struck i mean i just remember bumping into you and your family you know the day that they shut down the halava shaft yeah and i i I just i just could not believe it that that we were actually
4: at that point no we were it's this is the worst-case scenario that people called me an alarmist for, you know? And, you know, the fact that we could predict this with such precision and we are not prepared at all, you know? We we had no water supply for those families that were, you know, exposed to pollution. Mm-hmm. We were scrambling, you know, to to figure out what we were going to do and the U.S. federal government had um, no plans for us, no alternative sources of water for us. When you look um, back,
3: you know, uh, I mean, in your time at the Sierra yeah. Club, and then just to see what has transpired, I guess when when did you really get scared about what was happening?
4: I was traveling um, at the time that it was announced that uh, you know it started to being reported that people were you know seeing fuel in their water and i had i had covid and so i was stuck in a hotel in iceland and it was just it was very traumatizing for me because i was like I'm stuck there i couldn't leave for you know another 3 or 4 days and i'm just reading all these news reports and i'm you know texting with friends and family i mean i was scared from the first news report that there was jet fuel in the water. And, you know, the, the way the military was denying it, you know, like, oh, this isn't Red Hill, this is something else, you know. I mean, I had that that feeling in my Na'au that like this this was it. We were we living through it. And it's I see so many similarities between Oahu's experience and Okinawa's experience, but also between what happened in twenty fourteen after the twenty seven thousand gallons were released from Tank Five and what happened, uh, you know, after November 21 when the military was confronted with fuel in the water, and it's just it's it's heartbreaking to me to see us kind of slipping back into that phase, right? Like they announced that they no longer need the tanks for national security, and people celebrated. You know, they announced that you know it's going to be shut down. People celebrated, and so now they think that you know Red Hill's handled. It's over, and it's not over. Red Hill is not pow. And we need to brace ourselves for it to get worse.
3: That was Marty Townsend, former director of the Sierra Club and now with Earth Justice, talking with us about the similarities that she sees with the water contamination issues here on Oahu and the contamination of the aquifer in Okinawa that residents there are concerned about. The Honolulu City Council begins scrutinizing Mayor Rick Blangiardi's proposed budget today. HBR reporter Casey Harlow in studio with us to give us some of the highlights of the administration's spending plan. Good morning.
5: Good morning. So, yes, the budget committee for the Honolulu City Council is meeting right now uh, to day one of uh, discussing the administration's budget, and there will be meeting throughout the week. It's kind of a good opportunity for the council members to s- pop the hood of sorts, and you get the inside uh, details of uh, the administration and their efforts and uh, previous funding, effort, uh, funding where that went, and also what they plan to do for the upcoming fiscal year. Obviously, last Friday was uh, Mayor Blagiarty unveiling his priorities, and among those were affordable housing, homelessness, uh, public transportation and public safety, as well as parks. Uh, But the big thing, right, on Friday was that $300 uh, tax credit for about 151,000 homeowners on O'ahu. Uh, They must be receiving that uh, exemption, homeowner exemption from the city. Uh, And I spoke with uh, Budget Committee Chair Radiant Cordero about her thoughts on a lot of these um, priorities that he had. And she had some thoughts about the tax credit.
6: Of course, that $300 is a viable proposal, but I do believe that, and there are proposals for the past few years, about longer-term solutions, such as I think my committee just heard the Bills 37, 38, and 40, all introduced by Councilmember Kia Aina, our Vice Chair of the Council. And so those are hopefully long-term solutions that we can uh, add into the discussion. I know that it may be difficult for the city administration to implement but this is what the budget deliberation is here for sometimes it's hard to change systems up but if the systems and how we do things end up helping our neighbors in the long run why not try it
5: and just to clarify, Bill Thirty Seven and Bill Thirty Eight uh, basically lower the eligibility requirements for the city's real property tax credits. Uh, Thirty Seven basically raises the income level in order to get that, and uh, Thirty Eight uh, aligns with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's uh, area median income of eighty percent. So that's a little bit more flexible rather than you know a straight dollar amount of raising uh, the income level. Another thing uh, Cordero uh, would like to discuss more about is investments in infrastructure. And obviously, affordable housing uh, is a big priority for not only the administration, but also the council as well. Uh, Mayor Blangiardi's uh, proposal is uh, includes $100 million for land and property acquisition, uh, $6 million for affordable housing infrastructure, planning in places like in Halava and Ivelay. So uh, if you're definitely looking at the map, right, that would Most likely be along the rail line, especially uh, with the new Aloha Stadium Entertainment District, which is expected to have some housing and commercial real estate there. And um, $8.4 million of the Affordable Housing Strategic Development Program. Uh, But Cordero obviously is thinking more about infrastructure.
6: I think our city infrastructure really needs to be up to par or better to support all the things that we need to build. Because if we are building on things that don't support, let's say, um, affordable housing units, then we won't have a lot of places that, that we can put affordable housing units. So I'm looking forward to diving more into like what the infrastructure proposals are. Another thing is that we know that we're going to be dealing with transient vacation rentals as well as uh, new divisions within dpp i'm looking forward to seeing how the city administration is looking to shore up supporting dpp in that factor
5: and obviously you can't talk about housing without talking about dpp which is obviously facing that a uh permit backlog which numbers in the thousands obviously they're uh doing things uh, to try and streamline that process we'll see how that goes but obviously um yeah the administration uh is also trying to push efforts to support dpp and uh those factors as well mayor blangiardi um tried not tried to hold back a little bit more his state of the city is coming up on uh the 14th at 11 a.m he teased a regional plan for infrastructure uh adding on top of that $100 million in uh, CIP funding. And we'll see uh, where that goes as well. And Cordero mentioning new divisions in DPP. uh, They're going to uh, develop a shoreline division. So obviously climate change being a factor now that everybody's looking for.
3: Yeah, and then the mayor did uh, mention that they were looking at uh, the idea of self-certification for engineers and architects to kind of help with the backlog if they can you know, assume the liability. So we'll see how, how that plays out.
5: Right. Uh, Bill six uh, was d- discussed uh, last month. Uh, we'll see where that goes uh, in the committees uh, this month as well. Okay. But obviously, the budget committee's going through their thing right now.
3: All right. And we'll see what happens in the state of the city. But thank you so much, Casey. Yeah. Thank you. We've been talking to HBR's Casey Harlow. You can read his stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. reality check today features a story by honolulu civil beat investigations editor john hill it's about how a prominent honolulu drug rehab program gave out big salaries to top staff but underpaid dozens of regular workers it is politics and opinion editor chad blair who is joining us today good morning chad
7: good morning katherine
3: yeah so this one uh i remember when john did the story and that really raised a lot of eyebrows about the salaries that they were paying the top people
7: yeah, John first, rep- and I'm happy to fill in for him today, he's, uh, he's uh, earned a well-earned vacation. But back in 2017, John did report on how the CEO at the Sand Island Treatment Center, by the way, it's a nonprofit, uh, sort of like uh, Hawaii's version of Betty Ford, if you will, but it's a drug rehab facility in Honolulu, Sand Island, you can tell. But John reported how the CEO, Mason Henderson, At the time, was pulling down who four hundred well almost a half a a million dollars around the five hundred thousand dollar mark. That salary far outpaces comparable administrators for similar types of facilities. As well, several of the counselors themselves were in the six figure, well into the six figure range. Those salaries also well above what is normally paid. And the way that ended up working out is the attorney general. You know, ordered that basically Henderson pay back some of that money. That's a, that's a bit of another story. But now John has an update because the feds are involved and the feds have just worked out uh, an agreement with Sand Island Treatment Center, which is going to require them to, to make up a lot of back payments, OT, underpaid employees, uh, and that's going to go into effect this week.
3: Well, where's that extra money going to come from? Are they going to try and ask the legislature or (laughs) Uh, (laughs) what?
7: I don't don't know. And and, Mm -hmm. and this, by the way, the the center is where courts will order people to go, including even some of these very same counselors that we mentioned that are having drug addiction problems. The idea is to it's an alternative to jail or prison. But the current dollar figure that has to be paid back is four hundred and fifty two thousand dollars. So while we're not quite sure where the money will come from, we do know where it will go. It will go to counselors. It will go to staff manning the kitchens, uh, people working in clerical, people handling maintenance. It turns out, from John's reporting and the investigation by the Department of Labor, is that people, even people making flat salaries, were working a whole lot of OT in, in couldn't be compensated for that. Of course, it's not easy work counseling people with drug and alcohol addictions. As well, there's a lot of uh, violations that were found regarding how Sand Island Treatment Center handled its record-keeping.
3: Well, it, it is distressing, though, to think that these people were, uh, were due money and just didn't get paid that overtime.
7: Yeah, and, and John does manage to go a little bit back in the history. I, I didn't know this at all. This uh, center was founded... Oh boy, back in nineteen sixties. 1960s, the nineteen sixties 1960s, by two they're recovering alcoholics and and it has evolved over the years, but generally been out there in the Sand Island area. Uh, and then I think, of course, we have to give John some credit for having bro- broken this story. We should tell you what it is the uh, the treatment center had to say. They did not talk to John directly, but they used a PR firm. Uh, that's not uncommon for organizations that get in trouble to issue a statement. And, and the statement said that, among other things, South Island Treatment Center disagrees with how the Labor Department classifies its, its own business, which falls under the Federal Labor Standards Act. It also disagrees with some of the very investigative findings. They didn't go into much detail. Uh, But ultimately, uh, the treatment center, the rehab center, decided, look, we're going to avoid litigation. Uh, We want to continue serving our clients, the community. Uh, They have been doing this now for 63 years. But one wonders where the next turn will be uh, in this ongoing case.
3: Yeah. I mean, if they've got to come up with uh, $400,000 and the director was making (laughs) $500,000, I uh, (laughs) don't (laughs) know.
7: Yeah, maybe maybe that's the uh, the quid pro quo right there, but I doubt it. My guess yeah. is they'll work something out. By the way, Henderson was delayed. It took his own sweet time in paying back some of that, that overpayment he received, but apparently that's been resolved as well. So we'll rely on John for future reporting on the San Island Treatment Center.
3: All right. Thanks so much, Chad. Sure. That was Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read John Hill's story at civilbeat.org. <laughs>
0: report for HPR comes from SEX, the school for examining essential questions of sustainability. A Honolulu public charter middle school now accepting applications for the 2023-24 school year at seeqs.org.
6: From the return of in-person events to the diverse voices you hear on HPR every day, there's so much to celebrate. See for yourself with our annual report, reaching your email inbox next week. Not on our email list yet? Sign up at Hawaiipublicradio dot org slash newsletter.
0: Support for HPR comes from Hakuone in Kaka'ako Makai, where Oha plans to create a Hawaiian space in an urban setting. Committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Hakuone.com.
3: month marks the first for the University of Hawaii. A graduate of the John A. Burns School of Medicine assumes the helm as interim dean, replacing Jaris Hedges, who stepped down last week after 15 years. Dr. Lee buenconse Lum happens to be the first woman of Filipino descent in that post. She was in our studios recently to talk about the challenges ahead for the med school and the healthcare industry. She's a family practice physician who attended Lelihua High School in Stanford University. She is humbled to be chosen to step in as Hedges stepped down.
8: I'm just really honored. You know, when I started in medical school, I knew I wanted to serve the community. I I chose academic medicine rather than going into private practice because I felt I could make a bigger impact by training the next generation of family physicians. And being a dean or in this role never, ever crossed my mind. But I was just really blessed to be asked by him to join the dean's office about six years ago. And my kind of overseeing the medical education programs and the graduate medical education programs has really helped to prepare me for this. And I do feel That, you know, this is home for me, and I've been privileged to. I really be here since the second problem-based learning class. So really 1990 is when I started. And so to have been able to witness all the transformation in the curriculum and the expansion, to be awed every day by the research that our amazing researchers do, it's really humbling, actually. I mean, we just have such a great Ohana, and I, I think we really uh, all try to live that. And so I'm just really honored to help be part of that.
3: We have come out of the pandemic and and that whole situation has only cast a harsh light on the problem that we have of the shortage of healthcare workers doctors included yeah. <laughs> you know how do we deal with this i mean i know lots of effort has
8: been made to bring our people up but Oh my gosh! What a challenge! It, it is a challenge, and I'm, you know, happy to say that UH and many others across the state are really part of a multi pronged effort, not just for physician workforce, but for all health workforce members. Because, like you mentioned, during COVID, our respiratory technicians, you know, our medical assistants—I mean, the people who basically make healthcare run—we just didn't have enough. You know, certainly our, nor- our nurses. So what what Jabsum has been doing. Yeah for the physician side is we have had these pathway programs for many years that really reach out to the high schools, in some cases reach out to middle schools. They tend to be more concentrated in areas and communities with higher health needs because, again, we want to attract students from those communities so that they can return to those communities. So we have a lot of pathway programs. We have our Imiho'ola post-baccalaureate program. For those who are interested in science, maybe not not sure about medicine, you know, we have many other programs to just help kind of whet their appetite and see, you know, could healthcare or, or, or science or research career be for me? You know, it takes a lot to get into medical school and to succeed in medical school and it's expensive. Even though you know our medical school is really for what you get, it's really one of the cheapest in the country. With our cost of living here and the fact that many of our students and their parents, you know, don't come from wealthy families, it's it's a huge cost. And so Dean Hedges has made it a huge concerted effort to really get scholarships. And we have about a third of the class on four-year full-ride scholarships, thanks to the Weinmans and to Queens and Hoyt Pacific Health and and Kaiser and, you know, Castle and and others. But through the generosity of so many other donors, including alumni, about 93% of our students receive some form of scholarship. And that's really important because we know that the high educational debt burden, I mean, it's a problem nationally, Right. right? And it also can Inhibit folks from choosing specialties like primary care because you know we 're not paid as well as some of the other more procedure based specialties do you remember when when you were going through medical school and mm-hmm. what that was like with the expenses I, I, I do I took out loans to pay off my credit cards, which I was using to you know pay for food and and I was fortunate I had a tuition waiver, but just the cost of of living and books and and everything it was still, and I was starting to pay off my college loans so you know, it's definitely not easy. So the scholarships and the financial assistance, reducing that debt is is actually part of that workforce solution. The other thing that we have been trying to do besides grow the medical school class. So when I started, we had 52 students a year. And when Dean Hedges started, I think it was around 56 or so. And gradually now it's 77 students per year. Ideally, we would want to get to about 100 per year, but we need clinical training sites and we need faculty. So, you know, We work on that with a lot of folks. And hopefully over time, we'll be able to do that. You know, during the pandemic, I recall
3: interviewing a young woman who graduated from Farrington. Mm-hmm. She was Filipina, uh-huh. and she had just gotten a fellowship to work in Dr. Fauci's office. Wow. And, you know, I was at the start of the pandemic, and I thought, wow, you know, she's got a front row seat yeah. to all the workings of, of that you know agency. And then we also interviewed a couple of Marshallese doctors who Wonderful. were product of the yep. Jabson School. So Dr. Rickline and Dr. Rick and Dr. Yes, Alex. Yes. yes, and to see what they were doing for the Marshallese community yes, yes. on the Big Island and in Arkansas uh, was tremendous, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. they were able to make an impact Absolutely.
8: Yeah. And we've had so many of our faculty from so like Dr. Palafox, who works with not only the Marshallese and the Pacific Islander, but also with the Filipino communities, you know, Dr. Koholokula and so many faculty in the Department of Native Hawaiian Health, Dr. Okihiro, Dr. Manakea, Dr. I mean, just so many just really very much focused on working with the communities, listening to them, trying to understand what their needs are, because at that time early in the pandemic, you know the community wasn't really at the table right and so i had the the privilege of being in some of those you know conversations at the state and the county level and it was very apparent early on that we're like no some of these communities are really really high risk and we have to figure out a way to make sure that all of these plans and communication plans fit communities who may not have great internet access or for whom English might not be their first language or second or third language. Right. So, yeah, we've just been really great because we've got such a good team that has a long history of community engagement and has formed that trust with the Pacific Islander and the Native Hawaiian and the Filipino communities. And so I think have been able to help guide them. And You know, ultimately, you know, the statistics are pretty terrible and the disparities are still, you know, very apparent. But it could have just been so much worse, you know, had we not had trusted physicians that kind of, again, grew up here and, you know, that the community trusted.
3: And what can you share with us about the numbers of med school students that are coming up? I mean... Do we know the breakdown between male and female? Are we seeing more women get into this profession? Yeah,
8: in fact, for the last several years, it's been more than a majority of women. And so we've got, I think, close to 60% women. So of our 77 students, 85% of them are local Hawaii residents. I think we have about 13 or so from the neighbor islands. We have a handful of folks that are first generation. And we have increasing numbers who went to University of Hawaii at Manoa or UH Hilo for their undergraduate, which is also you fantastic. fantastic to see. If even throughout the undergraduate years, you know, that it, that is increasing. Uh, I think that speaks to the strength of UH.
3: And, you know, at one time, I know the med school down there had visions for a preschool, and they did have a little, you know, area set aside for the preschool. And for whatever reason, it, it didn't work out. Uh, and now there's a big push for preschools, yeah. you know, so
8: I don't know—is there a need at this point if we've got more women in the coming to the schools? Or yeah, know. you know, that's a that's a great question. We don't have that space. I believe that space is now our our clinics at Kakako, which is where a lot of our um, AIDS clinical trials and other other things happen. But you know, with women in the medical workforce, there is a lot of attention to, but really for everybody, you know, residents work very long hours, right? And, and so the accrediting bodies for both. Medical school and residencies are making sure that no matter where you train, you know, we're making sure that if a a person needs uh, time off for personal health care or, you know, for family, that they can ask for it without – feeling so guilty, you know, because there's a power differential, right, if you're a student or, or whatnot. For residency, we need to make sure there's, you know, breastfeeding pods available so that women don't have to breastfeed in the bathroom like, you know, before and other things. But yet, yeah, child care is, you know, certainly some of our families, our students, you know, struggle a little bit with child care. But that's What's really nice if you've got family here now it's not necessarily the same for our residents. our, our residents and fellows, about a third of them are from here, and so many of them do have family support, but the other two thirds are not, and many of them, by the time they're residents they do they do have families and so yeah.
3: You mentioned faculty. Mm-hmm. So how are we
8: doing in that area? Do we have vacancies or, you know, what's a snapshot? Yeah, so we've had a lot of retirements in our basic science faculty and somewhat in the clinical side, but definitely in the basic science side. And with the economy, and and we had a hiring freeze and whatnot for a couple of years, and so we haven't quite been able to keep up with those retirements. And so that's definitely something that's very high priority, because we need to have our research faculty to not only do great research, which is going to benefit the people of Hawaii, but really to also train that next generation of grad students and, and others. And so you know we are we are a bit short for some of our basic sciences, and then you know we do have retirements on the clinician side and, you know, you hear about burnout and mm-hmm. and whatnot. And so we've been very fortunate that our environment and with our health systems have been very patient and, and really just trying to do what they can to decrease that risk of burnout, but there's no question, right? Everybody yeah. has just been tired. So on the faculty side, on the clinicians, yeah, we're, we're, we still have a few positions that are open, and honestly, some of our departments are trying to expand because we need to, right? We need to have more subspecialists or expand GME programs to the neighbor islands, and so that requires faculty. So we're continuing to work on that. Recently, we featured, you know, how the university uh, has
3: garnered a number of large grants. yes you know, mm-hmm. if it's epigenetics or, you
8: know, but right. still lots of headway made in, yeah. in the research area. Yeah, and mm-hmm. Dean Hedges, even though he'll retire, he'll continue to be a key part of one of those large infrastructure grants, Ola Hawaii, and, you know, we've got our Associate Dean for Research, Dr. Gershenson, she's in charge of the diabetes COBRE, and, yeah, so we just have some really wonderful, you know, research going on that really has the community at its core, and so even if it's basic science research, say, in heart disease, it's it's really trying to understand why do some ethnic groups or some populations suffer more heart disease than other populations. And so, you know, we really try to keep the the community and the needs at at the the heart of what we do.
1: So as you
3: uh, take over this position for the interim, I don't know, you know, you look out on the landscape, um, what's your hope?
8: So my hope is that we can really pull together as a state and and this is so not just the healthcare sector. To make Hawaii healthy, it really has to be multifactorial, right? And so we saw this during COVID. We had the private industry and the banks and the economists and others with the healthcare we call that health and all government or that whole of government approach is really needed and so whether it's looking at issues of land or taxes food security you know all of those things are social determinants of health And, and of course, our cost of living and housing, you know. And so I'm hoping that the medical school can continue to play a role in helping to, you know, positively influence some of those areas. Certainly we teach our students about it, but we also want to make sure that we're part of the conversation when it's appropriate for us to be part of a conversation and or that we're guiding others to these important who, who really should be there really just trying to amplify the voices, you know, and we've got wonderful health sciences programs at UH, certainly at Manoa, but also in Hilo. We've got all of our allied health programs at Kapi'olani Community College. And so there is a concerted effort now to make sure that within UH, we're really communicating very well and trying to find synergies so that we can work together, but also in partnership with our healthcare systems, the Department of Health, Department of Human Services, Department of Corrections, you know, to, to just really try to come up with some real solutions, you know, that will last in better health for Hawaii.
3: And that was Dr. Lee Buenconseho Lam, Interim Dean and a graduate of the UH Medical School in Kaka'ako. She was also the first woman of color in that post, who we salute in our nod to Women's History Month.
0: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with art and artist-inspired talks, discussions, and programming for the community. Details of upcoming events at the What's On page at honolulumuseum.org. Museum.org.
1: If you're passionate about business development and public radio, we've got the job opportunity for you. HPR is seeking candidates for a corporate relations associate. Media sales experience is highly desired, and a love for public radio is a plus. Learn more about this position at hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. Application deadline is March 15th.
3: Six women surfers made history this year by participating in the Eddie Aikau Big Wave Invitational. It was the first time in the contest's 39-year history that female surfers competed alongside male competitors. Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi, Councilmember Mattwire, Matt Wire, and Myra Aikau thanked those trailblazing women at a recent ceremony, which happened to fall on Girls' Day. In the conversation, Stephanie Hahn had a chance to briefly speak to the women who surfed the eddy about their journeys
9: and how we can support women surfers. Keala Kennelly was the first woman ever invited in 2017 by Clyde Cow, but the last time the eddy was held was 2016. In 2023, she was joined in the water by five of her surfing sisters. Kennelly speaks about her journey as a surfer and her future plans to sponsor women surfers with her own board short brand, A-K-K-T-I-V, Active. So what's the big message you want to give to young women out there? Just that they can
10: do it. They can you know, there's a place for them in this sport. It's an amazing sport and they should go after it if that's what they want to do. You know, we fought really hard for and got equal pay in WSL events, but events that are not WSL events don't necessarily have to pay us equally, so that's one thing. I think there's a big incongruency in sponsorships, you know, like brands, endorsement deals. The men make like ten to twenty times more than the women do, so there's a big discrepancy there with sponsorships with a lot of women not even having any sponsorships you know i mean getting the events back here on the north shore was something i had to fight for the women were excluded Uh, you know when i started competing and, and wanted to do pro events i would fly over from Kauai and i would do the triple crown of surfing because women were in the halib event women were in the sunset event alongside the men we didn't have pipe yet but we had Honolulu bay so it gave someone like me a young girl growing up in hawaii a path to be a pro surfer to make the world championship tour to maybe be a world champion you know Carissa Moore had that path when she started surfing they had the events here on the North Shore and then they went away and they went away for about 10 or 11 years and it wasn't until you know myself and Carol and Betty DiPolito and others came and fought at the city and county and did resolution 2012 which passed unanimously and then that was with Heidi Tsuyoko and uh, Kim Pine and then Kim Pine wrote built 10 which passed and so now you are seeing all the events for women back on the North Shore as well as women surfing in Pipeline for the first time so a way that individuals can support the women is come down to their events cheer them on come watch them on the beach you know it's one of the excuses we get a lot for the women not being paid equally not having the same sponsorship money is they don't have the viewership you know so watch the women's heats on the live webcast get the viewership up for us so we we can
9: justify it's really interesting to me because it's this idea also of let's say using models instead of using women athletes to support and be a brand ambassador you know what's that so i rode for
10: one of the major surf brands billabong for probably about 10 or 15 years of my surfing career and i got to a point with them where they just capped my pay and then started cutting my pay <laughs> and then they would say that they didn't have budget for me but they were paying these models to be in their ads and to to wear their gear and go on these photo shoots and one time it was so embarrassing one of the models couldn't even swim she's supposed to be you know representing this, an ambassador for a surf brand the girl went on a photo shoot she's like i can't swim you know it's just like embarrassing and like you just would not see that in the men's like you wouldn't see them using models instead of athletes in their advertising and that's just something that has happened in the surf industry forever. One more thing I when you said how can people help? I started a women's board short brand. I started a brand called Active just because I feel like the brands have really neglected making good surf gear for women. So I made a women's high performance board short brand specifically for women where I use the same awesome materials that they use for the men's. You get so many choices of colors and styles and they're actually good cuts because I find that the brands, you know, they make them like way too short. They're like stiff materials. So I kept asking the brands, please let me design a women's board short that is actually functional and fashionable, but is high performance. And they wouldn't let me do it. So I went out and made my own brand. That's awesome. If, if people can support my brand, sure. I would be stoked. It's active, A-K-K-T-I-V-E, active with two Ks. That sounds great. Yeah. And thank so you your, so let much. Let your listeners
9: know. Makani Adrick was born and raised on Oahu's North Shore and says that this event also speaks to women's athletics. I think
1: this whole event has been a very good opportunity for the woman and the sport of surfing. I think it'll potentially open up new doors for women's events and not just in surfing but other sports. And as you see nowadays, there's so many young girls wanting to do sports that men do and nowadays it's like the girls are training hard for it they want it and they're here to show the world what they can do so i'm stoked that this opportunity has come up for us and how did you start when you were a little girl i started just surfing with my family going to the beach every day i was super young a baby but my dad would take us out surfing. Or my grandma would take us to the beach and we would just hang out all day. And eventually I ended up getting my own surfboard and that's when I started surfing on my own. A message I would give to the young girls out there wanting to do anything would be to believe in yourself Follow your dreams and work hard for the things that you want and do things because you want to do it. That's awesome. Thank you so much and congratulations. Thank you.
9: Paige Alms of Maui says that riding big waves is her dream and hopes that
11: others may find inspiration. The Eddie Invitational was one of the most special days ever. I mean, that swell, the crowd, the whole day, and everything that accumulated all together. It was a lifetime achievement to be able to be in an event like this, so it was hard to see it all like come all so quickly in one day, but it was honestly one of the most special days of my life, and I think it's just like the beginning for opening the doors for the next generation and I feel like a lot of the work that we're doing now and the achievements that are basically just laying the groundwork for the next generation and that's what it's all about
9: how people can support women surfing how can we support this
11: Who's listening to this? <laughs> uh, this is, okay, everybody, businesses. What can we do? Yeah, I mean, business as, community. What's the message you want to give them? As far as supporting women in all sports, surfing is a pretty unique um, sport, especially big wave surfing, since it doesn't happen very often. Being there, supporting women, encouraging little girls to get into it, sponsoring athletes. Like businesses can reach out and sponsor athletes. It's an amazing opportunity for a marketing strategy, <laughs> and yeah, just cheering us on and advocating for inclusion. Yeah, I feel like as a big wave surfer, you know, what we're doing is, it's pretty dangerous, and it's definitely like an awe-inspiring and jaw-dropping thing to to witness, so I feel like it's something that empowers other people to chase their dreams. By riding giant waves and showing people that it's possible, um, you're encouraging others to go out and chase their dreams as well, and that's what I hope that I'm, I'm doing with my career, and I hope that the next generation are, are seeing what we're doing now and knowing that they can go out and do it as well.
9: Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Andrea Mahler is originally from Brazil, now of Maui, and gives us insight about the appeal of surfing and what it means to those back in her country of origin and her excitement about women surfers in
12: Brazil. Well to me is 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 a history and it's also opening the doors for the next generation. It is it is a time where we're finally accepted, we're finally received. Yes, big wave surfing, there's women, and they can compete, and they can have a category. You know, young girls can invest on big wave surfing or an athletic career because there will be opportunities for them. For many years, we struggled just to get that opportunity for us to pay off all the training, all the investment that we put into the sport. And now I feel like this is it. Like, it's happening, you know, where you are invited. You will possibly have better sponsors. You will be able to train and dedicate to the sport and we're gonna see the sport evolve. Surfing is a global phenomenon. How does it build community in that way? Brazil is an amazing country and has a beautiful coastline, but also it is a place where there's difficulties. So I feel like the surfers in Brazil, they really, you know, saw that as an opportunity to get a career and travel and compete and do that as their work. You know, you see Medina, Caio Bell. Felipe Toledo all these amazing surfers that are coming from Brazil and I think they saw that light if I dedicate opportunities will come to them where sometimes if you're just in Brazil you may not have that opportunity so surfing gave them the way of growing and moving forward in a career surfing was that pathway you know it was a platform of a true career and I want to see Brazilian women now coming out and having that pathway having that opportunity to grow as a surfer
9: Emily Erickson began surfing seriously at 17 and says that surfing has been a beautiful way to live. You know, I am really stoked that Eddie finally ran and that the women were
2: able to join in and surf. It's been a dream for sure since I started surfing. Although I did come to it relatively late in life, I didn't surf when I was a kid. So it's always just been this really great passion to stay in the ocean and it's been a a beautiful way to live. So being able to surf in the Eddie and all that. I think it's going to leave a beautiful legacy for the kids of tomorrow, and it'll be amazing to see how things develop from here on out. So you didn't start when you were a kid. Tell me about how you did start. You know, I came back when I was 17, and I started boogie boarding Big Sunset. So I did that for a winter, and then the next winter, I took a big gun out from under my dad's house. It was a 10-6, one of his old boards, and started just taking that out to Big Sunset, and that passion really just took hold of me. And I've lived by it. I followed it.
9: Because you did start when you're older. So you became, you're potentially battling more of a fear factor than, let's say, if you're two years old and starting, like, what is the feeling that you have? My approach has been
2: probably a bit unique. I ran, I ran cross country and track and running like longer distances. You have this determination kind of factor. And I wasn't, I was kind of one of the, skin and bones kids i was a skinny kid growing into my body and it took some time to develop muscle so i really uh had that experience of coming into my own and gaining muscle seeing such a change you know feeling athletic from a young age right and that determination it took for me to keep going it was really something that i think put me in a great position to do what i did and handle the water and swim and have that kind of endurance and um also the kind of determination in your mind you need i also had honestly a natural sense of um, calm and coming home in the ocean so for me it's been beautiful and um, i'm just really really thankful that i rediscovered my love of the ocean and discovered surfing and you know it's been a wild story altogether so yeah it's been a beautiful experience oh thank you so much and congratulations thank you so much
3: We have been hearing from Andrea Moeller, Ebony uh, Erickson, Keala Kennelly, Makani Adrick, and Paige Alms, five of the six participants in the Eddie Aikau Big Wave Invitational. The sixth, Justine DuPont, wasn't able to attend. Instead, her niece, Mahina Hailstones, was there to accept her award. Congratulations to these history-making female surfers. They have forever changed big wave surfing. That's it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear from Hawaii's Poet Laureate, Randy McDougal. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back? Uh, You can find The Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation.